This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It's December 1st, 2023. Our guest today is director Joe Hunting. Uh, you may remember his HBO documentary, We Met in VR, uh, came out last year. It was quite a hit, brought quite a bit of attention to uh, social VR, in particular VR chat. So we'll look forward to bringing him in uh, in a few minutes. Meanwhile, let's get to the news. And first of all, great to see you guys. How was Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving was nice. I was on the East Coast. I know Roni is at the East Coast, so uh, it was okay. Roni is an East Coast guy, and you are, it looks like, in a hotel room. Yeah, guess where I'm at again, you know, Conference Central. Take one guess. It's your it's it's your suite in Las my, Vegas. <laughs> my home away from home, Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh. I'll be here again next week, too. Uh, it's You're that at the time Bellagio? Where, where are you, Ted? No, I'm at a little hotel off the Strip because um, it's nice, but it's not on the Strip. Um it's uh, it, this this past week is a, a conference called AWS reInvent. And uh, the best way I can describe it is uh, Amazon is eating the world and all pieces and parts of it uh, because this is a massive conference. It, it takes place in five of the biggest hotels in Vegas and literally takes them all over with the amount of conference and speeches. So it's at the Venetian, the Wynn, the Mandalay Bay, the MGM Grand and Caesars. And maybe one over. And one everybody is on an expense account, and they're just printing money over. There. It is it, it's the amount of people. The first of all, the amount of verticals that AWS has entered and dominated is shocking. You name a vertical, all the things we talk about about you know how VR has become a little cultivated industry, oil and gas, healthcare, um, you know, retail in all forms, all Not kinds data. of. <laughs> well, data that drives all of those industries, and it is just the amount of humanity that it runs through these data servers is is shocking. And maybe the biggest news that came out is that uh, Amazon uh, earlier this week at this conference announced a quantum hardware appliance um, to deal with error correction and noise correction uh, on what's called qubits, which we don't talk about enough on this podcast. We probably need to start bringing uh, some quantum experts in. Ron Roni, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, we're already in the weird stuff, right? AI, uh, immersive computing, quantum needs to be in the room. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, it was a, it's been an interesting week. I got one more day and then I'm heading out. I'll I'll talk to our booker about that. Quantum? <laughs> yeah, booking where AI quantum engineers. <laughs> since since we brought it up though, um AI as we know it is real and functioning and we all know immersive computing and it's on a progression to get somewhere. Quantum is one of the more dark mysterious things that I know some of the top folks in the field. It could be now. It could be five years. It could be 70 years. It could also be like it never happens. Yeah. But it does look like it's coming. You know, IBM, Amazon, Intel, NVIDIA. NVIDIA had a presence here. They showed me this this little box about as big as a pizza box 
uh, of these, you know, H100 uh, processors all sort of running together in parallel. And it was, you know, it wasn't that big physically. I said, well, how much does this cost? He's, the, the, the kid is running the thing. He's like, oh, about $300,000. <laughs> wow. In, a, in like a footprint of like a pizza box. It was so like, wow. so here's a here's a question for you about uh, Amazon that you may or may not know. What percentage of the new uh, Nvidia boxes are going to Amazon? It's a really good question, uh, and 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 I, I don't know the answer. And I would ask the same question of what percentage is going to OpenAI and all of its brethren, which of course. Well, and, and, our, right, our and, and Google and Microsoft, right. and I mean, can can they even make enough for all those? No, they de they definitely can't. We know they're all on back order, and and they're you know, and and AMD and Qualcomm and you know anybody else that makes silicon um, is is trying to catch up. Right. Uh, but we didn't yet because we were on holiday break last week. We haven't talked about the ro the Sam Altman roller coaster at all yet. So uh, can we talk? Hasn't guess, it all been said? I guess in the rearview mirror already, right? So there you go. Well, we have to talk about it a little bit. Ted, what's your take? <laughs> Everyone like a hot take for a minute. Well, you start. Uh, you start. Well, I, I did mine in the Forbes column last week, so I'll skip. You go. My take home was trust, stability, out the window. And mm. when you have almost 700 plus people of a 770 com person company saying the only value is the people, I would pay attention to that as an investor because the if they all marched off at once and your investment went down to zero, it also asks the question, what was the fundamental core technical value? And is it just a people play? And if it is, that's really scary because a lot of businesses have fundamental value. They're not as dependent or held hostage by a group of people. But this was one of those moments that said, we are the only value in the company. When we leave, the whole thing disintegrates. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah, and I asked that same question about you know Elon 2.0 right now, right? In terms of what is the actual real value of an X slash Twitter platform, and and you know how how vulnerable is it? Um, and I, I find an endless form of fascination uh, of people. I mean, you know, yes, I guess here we are. We we talk for an hour a week, right? But people that can't keep their damn mouth shut and uh, just go off the rails in, in such dramatic fashion that you can't make this stuff up. It feels like we've we've created our own reality movie. I'm, I'm sorry, just to be clear here, we now segued from Sam Altman to Into Elon's Elon. current meltdown? Yeah, I did, <laughs> I did. Well, actually, Charlie, can I make one quick comment on it? Of course. I think what these these systems are showing is that they're not they're not fundamental, pure things in search of truth, right? They're taking a misinformation and the whole mess that's the internet shoving it into gigantic unknowable systems that's what these big ai systems are they have an unknowability and you shove all this misinformation in, and it spits things out i'm making it very simple but we're not chasing what's true we're not chasing what's wise we are not chasing what's trustworthy we're spewing misinformation at greater rates and it's actually a terrifying use of computing that I don't think Alan Turing or the other like mathematicians who helped come up with computing theory, they thought it was like math and computing, this pursuit of things that were true. What it's become is a machine that spews like falsehoods. That's a real problem. That Especially this, like, fundamental now we've so now we've segued <laughs> from uh, all the way from Elon, and now we're back to OpenAI and security. Just trying to be clear here. <laughs> 
Actually, you guys are really going stream of consciousness on me this morning. Well, this is what happens when you when when you you know what Rody's talking about is the 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 wealth of what is being uh, is what's occurring now, right? As I'm in it on the AWS front this week, a lot of the talks were about something called AWS Bedrock and this thing called Lex, which is their like voice AI thing. And, you know, everything sort of feels like a, a bad 70s Superman movie. All, they all have like these names <laughs> of, and, and you're just like sitting there and you could just tell everybody is fascinated and uneasy at the same time at the power of what's being created so quickly now um, that I, I fully believe in what Ronnie's saying. You, it's it's uncontrollable what's what's happening. You, you know, um, one thing that, that occurs to me as as we sort of bounce around on these different topics is you know, every week we're focused on on different little pieces of this story, right? Yeah. Today we'll talk about Pika Labs, raise some money, really interesting little company uh, in the generative AI space. Uh, lots of lots of XR companies raising money this week. Uh, so, in case we forgot about them and that thing called the metaverse, people are still working on it. hasn't gone away, but it seems to me there is a meta story here that is much bigger than all these little pieces, as large as they may seem when we hold them up close to us in any given week. Really, there's a much larger story here. And I think, Roni, you're touching on it now. And, and you came at it in an obtuse way, but I think it is a good point that there's a bigger story here that is bigger than companies, you know, that is bigger than Paramount or Boston Consulting or Forbes, right? There is a... a trajectory of humanity story here that is almost as hard to see as it is the nuances inside of a company like OpenAI. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, you call a slingshot effect, right? Where we've been pulling pulling back all this technology, all this technology, all this technology for the last 45, 50 years. And then suddenly we just released it. Yeah. And it shot into the atmosphere and here we go, you know, kind of thing. Well, can, uh, I give, uh, can I give you a very quick take on your trajectory, man? So I gave a talk yeah, yesterday. Yeah. Um, at Filmgate at the University of Miami on that topic. Um, and, and and the container I have for that topic is a project I've been working on with Richard Taylor at WEDA for, for a number of years called The Hour Blue. And it's our fictional world where that trajectory you're describing, where it's our play box for describing what happens to us if we're not careful. Yeah, what happens when we don't know what's true anymore? Oh, mm. let, that's a good experiment. Let's try. Well, we're so, trying it right now. We're I in it right now. I think we're seeing that. And I think we're seeing people act on what's not true. They get triggered by something on TikTok or on Twitter or on Instagram, and they run out and they beat up other people. They commit violent acts. They, they do in things that have huge cognitive dissonance. We're actually seeing... It doesn't just stay in the box. That's what's scary. It actually manifests in anger and emotions and people being screaming and yelling about things that could be patently not true. And that's actually terrifying because later the, that person will say, but I thought it was true. But the damage you created is irreversible. That's the entropy of the universe. So yeah. be, when people are not worried about AI, what they fail to realize, it's not the AI that's just going to blow everything up. It's how it influences people to do things in the world that's that's the really scary thing if we're not careful so speaking of weta there was a, a story that came out yesterday afternoon uh about um you know the unity under new management is trying to to reel things back into fundamentals i think we're seeing that at epic games also 
Uh, and so they're cutting most of that acquisition, that $1.6 billion acquisition they made two years ago. They're cutting almost most 300 of people, right? Yeah. Almost yeah. 300 brilliant WADA digital people back on the street. Uh, and so is that affecting the project you're doing with Richard, do you think? So weirdly, when Unity acquired WADA Digital, there were two companies, WADA Workshop and WADA Digital. And thank God what Richard did was he owns 100% of WADA Workshop, totally insulated from all of this. The WADA Digital folks got absorbed in the Unity, which I thought was a strange acquisition. And unfortunately for them, they're getting thrown back out. But it is a weird thing, right? The the beauty of what a digital unity was the promise of amazing cinematic quality game engines and all these wondrous things. And I don't know why this happened. I don't know, Ted, you might have a view, but why would they let that group, which is so talented, so amazing, just on the street like this? Well, I mean, there's there's a macro version of this, which is growth at all costs, acquisition at all costs without really analyzing the true profit benefit of it, and then management sort of realizing they need to course correct. And we've seen this, you know, not just with uh, with Weta slash Unity, we've seen it with Epic over the past year. The Epic um, uh, conference in New Orleans was really interesting. And, and, you know, Tim Sweeney was very overt and honest about, like, you know, we grew so fast because of Fortnite. And when Fortnite started to tail off, not that it's not, you know, a huge important sort of gaming environment, but it's not at, at its peak, uh, suddenly they were a company that was making hundreds of millions, then making billions and then less billions, but they had staffed up accordingly and acquired a lot of companies accordingly. Uh, that's a mirrored story with what happened with um, Unity and Weta Digital is, you know, the the fervor of we need this, we need to keep growing, we need to keep growing. Um, I think that thesis starts to starts to crack, right? And I've, I've, we've seen it with all large companies, Google, Apple. Um, uh, well, Ted, uh, here's the other piece though, the if you follow the the Unity news very closely, and I, I don't know if all of our re, our listeners do, um, basically uh, the former CEO John Ricciatello was replaced by someone who's a friend of mine, uh, Jim Whitehurst. Jim Whitehurst is famous for being an IBM president and and being CEO of Red Hat. So when you apply that lens to Unity, you're like, what am I doing with what a digital stuff? It's right. like get get really down to the hardcore of like what is the computing business of Unity. The, the developer tools, not we're also a film studio kind of thing. So I think he put that hardcore like Red Hat type computing lens and go, how do we turn this thing back into a fundamental computing company, not a media creation? That That's my take on it, right? If you look yeah, at Jim's background right. and like he's a, he's a Silver Lake advisor. So it's a private equity, get rid of things that are not core. That's what I think is happening. Well, yeah, every, uh, companies are studying their froth effect, right? They build up a froth and then they're like, just scrape all that froth off because it's not actually creating um, positive revenue for the company. And, you know, and look, l large entertainment companies are doing this too. Look at what Disney's been doing to sort of go, you know what? Things are not as happy as we are in all these sectors. We have to clean up house. We have to basically find our, our profit zones and invest more in where we can, we can make profit. So. But at the same time, I think we can all agree, the level of talent that just got put on the street, it's heartbreaking, right? I mean, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been pushed into situations like they, all of you guys have probably been in similar situations. These are such brilliant Academy Award winning geniuses who are, you know, capable of creating some of those Unity just, things on the planet. Unity just, just doesn't have, Unity doesn't have work that is their equal. Correct. 
So that that really is the problem because Unity is Unity is not in that business. They shouldn't have bought that business. Um, it was, didn't make sense at the time. Uh, obviously, it doesn't make sense to new management. And uh, the result is lots of uh, money got moved around the ether sphere, uh, and people lost their jobs. Uh, They're going to so, end up at Disney, Lucasfilm, Double Negative, maybe yeah, Paramount. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a huge disruption for them personally. And yes. you know, they're in New Zealand, not ideal. Uh, you know, takes away some of their leverage. So, uh, you know, uh, it's just a mess. It was a mistake to buy them. So, uh, listen, news this week. Uh, let me just rip through it so we can get right to Joe Hunting, who's in the green room. Um, Pika Labs raised $55 million. Uh, this is the text-to-video competitor to Runway ML, which uh, continues on its own uh, rocket ride. But Pika Labs, catching up to them quickly. Uh, I love the fact that two young women uh, started this company. One of them is a former meta AI engineer, but apparently also a Stanford PhD student. So as with many things, Silicon Valley, it is tied up with Stanford, but uh, good on them. They've just put out a new release that um, those of us in the world of cinematic AI are salivating over. Uh, Hololite, a European XR uh, enterprise-focused XR company uh, just raised $12 million. We're going to have um, uh, the chief operating officer of that company on with us in the new year. Uh, Third Verse, a VR game developer. So they're focused on the MetaQuest and the uh, PlayStation 2 VR. Uh, they raised $8 million for a bunch of uh, games like... Um, Adex and Soul Covenant that I know nothing about, but I guess they're pretty excited about them. So uh, our friends at VR Engineers, uh, the worst name in XR, <laughs> raised $6 million. These are the guys with the cantilevered 12-pound VR headset, which is better than human eye resolution so that when you put it on, you literally fall over. So when people say, I want human eye resolution in my headset, I'm like, no, you don't. You don't know what you're saying because it would be incredibly crazy to be, I mean, this is, you know, they're training people who are flying upside down in jets. So, you know, it's great for them. And that's, that's where all this stuff is coming out at ITSEC, which is the big military simulation, uh, military tech conference in Orlando after Thanksgiving every year. Varjo now has a $3,900 headset. Uh, also human eye resolution uh, to compete with, I guess the, um, the new Apple device. So uh, you get by with a little less money there. We talked about Weta Digital and yeah, that's it. So, I mean, that's yes. That's a lot like, though. Yeah. So I thought I mean, the Vario, what did you guys think about the Vario headset? It seems to be quite um, capable with a much smaller team and less, much less money than probably what Apple. There's a about. market. There's a big market at the high end that we, yeah. you know, that we don't see every day because it's, behind closed doors in places like Orlando and, you know, on Air Force bases, but, um, you know, and and in heavy industry, there's a real application for, for simulation technology that is incredibly precise. Right. Those guys are proving it out, right? Continuing to raise capital. Charlie, you and I have seen those devices track through their evolution, extraordinarily exotic, requiring large, you know, CPU, GPU farms to run them. And now they're getting more and more viable um, that industry is going to keep chugging right along. I was sitting know? inside of a simulated BMW wearing the VR engineers XTAL, and I was panicked for a moment because I couldn't figure out how to get the door to open. <laughs> I just, That's what uh, simulation is. 
Yeah, you know, exactly. Charlie, before we get to the, the guest, there's one fairly, I think, significant story on consumer uh, VR that uh, has bubbled up that um, it looks like Steam has got some sort of deal going on with uh, Meta, Meta Quest to allow kind of a direct pipe uh, of Steam, uh, you know, all the Steam games like Half-Life Alex and stuff into the uh, the Quest three i get maybe quest two as well but quest three how I would was... how would that work i think i did see that story and i just wasn't clear on how that was going to work because well i think there's i think there's always clunky ways to do it you know you can kind of link with your USB-C to your computer but apparently now this is like you know cloud-based gaming you know basically the way you would download stuff from steam on your big computer except now you download it on your headset i'm not 100 percent sure i don't think they've really come up with all because the details I'm like for, we'll take like half like life alex it's not the whole high-end hugely graphic half like alex it has to be some kind of a version optimized for the meta quest they have to distill it down a little bit take yeah. away some of the lighting and the ray tracing but yeah. we saw that with one of my favorite vr games which is the robo recall the epic first party title uh when they released it on the quest i thought oh my god you know i played it for a long time uh, with a computer next to me and a tethered VR system, it's never going to be that good on a Quest. And guess what? It was really good on a Quest. And and the difference of losing a little bit of the reflections and stuff, and it was playing on a Quest 2. Now with a Quest 3, I think maybe the point is that the level of graphics and that Qualcomm chip that's in a Quest 3 is actually good enough to, to be not quite on par, but good enough that the gaming experiences are fine. And why not make that... Uh, that uh, connection so i think that that maybe we should follow up on that next week because i imagine there'll be more news about it yeah let's 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 see how that pans out i just brought in joe hunting from the um green room joe hunting welcome hey joe hey thank you so much for bringing me in it's nice to no, meet you all a pleasure joe and i uh had been got acquainted a few months ago and he was kind enough to visit us at chapman um i've got roni abovitz founder of uh magic leap and a uh member of the Boston Consulting Group, I guess you would say, uh, consulted to them, Ted Chilowitz, head of, um, head futurist at Paramount Global and Viacom. And uh, Joe is a very young filmmaker who has <laughs> embarked on a remarkable career. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. No, it's it's amazing to be surrounded by some greats in the industry. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's very exciting to be here. Um, well, well, you are too kind. Um, let's let's before we jump into talking about we met in VR and how that uh, film came about. And and again, congrats on its success because it really uh, is helping. Uh, I would say to socialize the idea of normal people living normal lives that just happen to be in VR. And mm. uh, I think that that is a, a terrific message as the medium starts to mature that it technology starts to disappear in in favor of what makes us human so i, I do want to talk about that because I, I think it's really really uh important film in that respect for vr uh, with regard to you though did i see news that you actually are starting a studio to make more films that are shot inside of vr yes that's correct and, and i'd be happy to to start yeah tell that. us about that Sure. Yeah, I've just recently announced my production company. It's called Painted Clouds. And the studio is focused on creating and producing work using social VR platforms with a specific interest in VR chat and using that as a, you know, as a platform to tell documentary stories, more documentary stories, um, but also using it to 
facilitate narrative fictional projects as well. So building out sets and environments and uh, creating original avatars to to film bespoke uh, fiction series as well. Yeah, I've always wondered when people are going to start filming it and sort of making it into real-time animation. Absolutely. I think the VR, VR filmmaking, well, the VR chat filmmaking community has really been thriving this year and has come up so much. We've just been celebrating it at a Rain Dance Immersive Festival as well, which I can certainly speak to. Um, it just felt like the ideal time in terms of my career and the community to create a more collaborative environment, which would be, you know, it would allow me to collaborate with further studios and kind of open up for more partnerships outside of just uh, just myself and my individual nature. So, yeah, it's a very exciting step. It's a it's a big next step for me. And yeah, I have a lot planned and a lot going on at the moment. So was it, so, uh, so... Is it uh, funded by venture or how did you get it up and running it it's it, we we were currently still solidifying kind of our initial investments. This year has really been a year of building the foundations for the company and just building the team. Um, and so you know it's been kind of a, a personal investment so far. However, next year we're pitching various projects to different companies and uh, and bringing on some partners to to help. Uh, lift up our productions and lift up the projects obviously coming into the strike and coming out of the strike I should say uh, in Hollywood as you know it's been kind of careful timing on when we should pitch projects and when to approach different partners and so we've been taking it a little bit slow this winter slower than we anticipated but um, I think it's it's good to be patient at the moment so here's the lens I'll I'll come at this uh, from Joe and see if this is of interest to talk about the way that I sure. view your your work style and and your creation engine, the, the the where you're going with this, it it reflected on me as sort of a version of mocap, um, mm. using VR technology and avatars to create uh, a capture base that you could capture sort of volumes of material long form. You could create, you know, people can emote and act and talk to each other just like we're doing now. Um, theoretically, we could do this in VR chat and do the same thing uh, and build a story that way. Um, and I'm curious, do you view it through that lens as well or or or, or something different? Because to me, it's like it's a it's sort of an alternative to what we do in the big studio world with traditional mocap and kind of high fidelity deliverables. These, I would say, were kind of creative low fidelity visuals. But then you're starting to move into potentially with what we're seeing with what AI can do now using mm -hmm. that as a mocap baseline and then potentially driving that into a number of different stylistic visuals um, that we're seeing across the board, uh, but still fairly short form. You're able to, I think, create long form content that way. So I'm curious if that's mm. a, an interesting area to talk about or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. Also just in, in defining what filming in VR chat is like as well. It really is, you know, another form of motion capture. I'm filming with people from, you know, across the world using full body tracking. So, you know, we've got various vibe trackers or, or different tracker systems on the body and that's being interpreted by VR chats IK. And then we're able to use full body within the platform. What I love about filming inside of VR chat and social VR platforms specifically is you are in the headset yourself, you know, as a director, actors are in headset, everyone is in headset, you're not, you know, in terms of disassociated from the screen in a mocap studio wearing your, uh, your suit, you're actually present in the space and you're embodying the character in real time. 
And that's that would that's you know that experience from a director's point of view and working with the actors, that's the real nugget that gets me excited about this this way of filmmaking. It's yeah. the presence and the sort of interactions you can have in that space. You know, it's so exciting. And I've been doing it for for five years now and I, I can't get enough of it. And so we're just finding ways to improve that tracking, improve the quality, try to build bespoke avatars and worlds that kind of escape that low fidelity atmosphere that you know vr chat can have and, and really try and build more polished and cohesive art pieces that um, can hold up against the more high fidelity mocap uh, forms that we have what's your relationship with vr chat we know them well we've seen their trajectory you know from the mm -hmm. earliest days of oculus kind of becoming a little superstar still holding their own as as meta you know attempts to kind of work their horizons stuff over and over again and vr chat just keeps chugging right along are you partners with them? Do they support you more than just an average uh, user? Like, give us a little sense of the relationship that you have with the yeah. team. That's a great question. Now, I feel so fortunate that I've been talking with VRChat since the, you know, my very first film and wanted to ensure that, you know, there was a respectful relationship there. And the way we've been running it throughout my career, and this also goes for Painted Clouds, is they don't in any way fund or support or are not partnered with me in any way, but they have no objection to the work that I do. Um, and so that's where that where we're at um, in terms of the relationship with the company. So it's just, you're just friends and they support you, but they don't financially support you or anything. It's just, that's correct. Like, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. We had another... I have one more question, but I'll let you guys ask some questions. Go ahead. Sure. No, I was just going to mention, uh, I'm sure, you know, um, TFM Johnny, who we had oh, yes. on the I know, show last year. I know them. And uh, he makes music videos in VR uh, that are, first of all, quite extraordinary. Uh, second mm -hmm. of all, he he's a VTuber, which means he broadcasts on YouTube from inside of VR. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to use his, his real name. I'm just going to use his stage. His, his real name is John. Uh, but um, as TMF Johnny, he is a anime wolf boy who is sort of like a radio DJ, I would say. He is a musician by trade and actually quite a good one. So a lot of what he does uh, involves the performance of live music from inside of VR. Uh, so it's not quite documentary, but what I thought was interesting, and we talked about this when you visited the class, is that when John shoots one of these media videos, he's got location scouts who are looking for places inside of VR chat that they can shoot that would be good for their videos. Um, you know, he's got uh, a camera person who is running a virtual camera on a PC. Um, you know, he's he's got a coordinator. He's got somebody who is worried about sound. <laughs> so it he's got a whole film crew there inside of VR. So that's what I imagine that Joe is doing. But his approach is actually much different and much more intimate. And again, more like a guy who has a high definition camera and has a relationship with the subject and less like a somebody who is imitating Hollywood. And I don't want to denigrate John's work as imitating Hollywood, but it's not. He does lots of great things that are native to the medium, but he yes. is a performer in the traditional sense. He's there to entertain us uh, as both the musician and the comedian. And uh, I mean, he's a terrific talent and deserving of, of all the success he has, but a very different approach than the one that you take. Yes. No, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought uh, Johnny up. He, he's fantastic. And yeah, what we do is, is really not that similar. It's a great comparison. 
Um, you know, I also, well, for We Met in Virtual Reality and any documentary work specifically, I'm spending hours location scouting and <laughs> trying to find spaces that really suit my vision and um, allow me to brainstorm in a really creative and present way as I'm writing and, you know, thinking about where to film. VRChat is, has so much luxury with that. Um, yeah, and now with Painted Clouds, we've got a small team of of camera operators and art department and artists who are building um, bespoke assets, as I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, so a great a great comparison. Johnny Johnny's brilliant. Um, I was going to say that I think your um, what you're doing. First of all, I, I love the the your your we met in virtual reality film. I thought it was like a great documentary of something that is going to impact and be the way of life for maybe people in. 20 years from now, you'll have like a billion or 2 billion people living like that. But it was like the early manifestation of people look back and go, you sort of captured what is going to be happening. But the, the I, I'm a full believer in what you're trying to do with painted clouds. I'm actually working on something not too different. Um, it makes total sense if you understand the trajectory of networks, GPUs, AI, immersive computing, the fact that you would go on a physical set anymore. Uh, and deal with the rain or whatever because <laughs> i mean we we already know that we're gonna hit like human photorealism um and you're gonna have actors that are both ai and physical and you'll be able to do mm. any like the next spielbergs will be what you're doing i've like i've near zero doubt about that they'll be cool like doing analog films on a real set will kind of be like vinyl records and and they'll be kind of a backlash and kids will get their eight millimeter bolexes or whatever 16 millimeter bolexes <laughs> do that but I think film has to go the way you're 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 describing here, um, because mm -hmm. the cost effectiveness of it is orders of magnitude better than anything else, and the quality level is is right now you're in the early days, right? But you can almost predict when the quality level will surpass like Avatar movies and surpass like what we're doing now. It'll just cross that line, um, mm -hmm. and people will debate when that happens. But it's not if it'll happen. It's simply defining the timeline of when. That's all. Oh, no, thank you for raising that. And those feelings were really with me and still are with Painted Clouds. Um, I couldn't agree more. It is such an important time in terms of virtual production workflows and and how we work. Um, I'm glad you raised the point of costs. It, you know, these this sort of this form of work is, is dramatically lower in costs. You know, I'm going to be working. We're going into pre-production for a narrative series next year, which is very exciting. Uh, and we've got actors across the US and uh, some in other places of the world all working from home. Um, and one, they're in the comfort of that. And, um, you know, that's it's quite a nice environment to be performing from in many ways. But also we're not flying everyone out to one place to then go into a virtual engine. We just go straight into the engine together in real time from home. Um, yeah, which which is amazing logistics. It's a little terrifying. I mean, Ted's at a, at, at, you know, Viacom Paramount, but it's a little mm -hmm. terrifying if the entire superstructure of how films are made eventually crumbles to something that like a kid at home, like at some point, a kid at home will have first Jurassic Park level of quality, you know, late, you know, mid nineties Jurassic Park that's coming in a few years. And then you're going to hit like the last Avatar movie level of quality a little bit after that. But then your playground, like you did in, you know, we live in VR, is going to be, you could just go around and film in an environment that detailed. 
And in which case, mm-hmm. like the whole system begins to crumble and an entirely new generation of creators are free to do stuff. I, I, I think it's super exciting. But if you're in the establishment, we'll love to get Ted's take. I think it's exciting and scary. If you're you, it's only exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I am in a bit of a bubble, but yeah, sorry, uh, go on. No, Ted, what, what, it actually, it, well, it actually leads me into the question that I was holding off a- answering or asking, and you guys kind of created a nice little bubble around it. So here's my curiosity, and I imagine a lot of our listeners' curiosity, is uh, I would characterize what you were doing with your movie uh, as really the edge of what we refer to as new media in our world, right? I mean, it's new technology, new forms of storytelling, but you're really focused on creating an engaging story that emoted, right? That's why people liked it. It's not just about, oh, that's cool that you did it in VR. It was that you actually got real performances out of these people, and they kind of let themselves into your world and, and expose themselves, right? And that was kind of what was so intriguing about the project. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm curious about, and let's see how candid you can be, is working on that edge of new media and then making a deal with HBO, which would be considered a stalwart of traditional media, although by their own uh, estimation, cutting new ground 30 years ago when they came up with the concept of home box office, which was the idea of theatrical level entertainment, but the theaters in your home. It was, right? it was 50 years ago, but yeah. 50 years ago. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus, creepers. You're right. It was 50 years ago. Cause I was a young teenager. I was 13 years old with my HBO Cinemax box on the exactly. TV. Party, 100%. So 50 years, half a century ago, Joe, um, and you had to, you know, work with, I'm sure, studio executives and make a deal, right? You got you got exposure at a at a film festival, and then you know, here you go, and they come to you. Give us regale us with the stories of how that how that worked out and how you managed to to make that deal. Yeah, of course I can. Um, yeah, first of all, I feel you know it was an absolute whirlwind, especially being a young director. You know, as you mentioned, um, I feel very lucky and honored to have been you know, thrusted into the world of Sundance and, you know, I took the opportunity as soon as I could and um, took every opportunity that I could after that point as well. But obviously I was, it was very important to me that the film was going to be celebrated in a way that matched my intentions as well. Um, It is a completely new documentary. I'm talking about We Met in Virtual Reality, of course. Um, It's a very new documentary and although it's filmed in a new format filmed entirely inside of VR. Again, it's about the story and it's about how these people are going to be celebrated, the subjects telling their stories about love, loss, and um, and education and relationships. And so with all of that, um, when I started entering conversations and meetings after the premiere at Sundance, I just wanted to connect with a distributor who really understood every part of the documentary and could talk about it in a way that was digestible and easy for audiences to understand. And I was lucky to be partnering with Synetic Media at that time. They were the sales agency on the film, so I was not alone um, in these conversations. I also had Field of Vision and XTR, who are both two amazing documentary studios that help produce the film out of Sundance. And so I was certainly not alone in these conversations. And I met with three of the executives at HBO Docs and we had a long conversation about the values of the documentary, 
you know, how special Jenny Dust Bunny Toaster and all of their stories were. And they just understood it and and got it. And it obviously made me extremely happy that they did. And so um, we worked together on on making that deal and, and selling the film and then celebrating it and marketing it in a way that we were all happy with. And I must admit, it was a dream come true for me, um, especially as a, you know, my debut feature film. It really couldn't have gone better and I'll uh, for, forever be grateful for that journey. Well, let's let's stop there for a quick second. You do look like you're 12 years old, and I was a bit taken aback <laughs> when we saw each other a couple of months ago. I did that did not. I didn't go to Sundance. I you know, you know, most of the information I get is you know in in text. So I, you know, I didn't realize that you're just out of film school. So it's really interesting, right? Your film school career, the beginning of your film career, was completely disrupted, right? There was no way to actually begin your career in 2020 or 2021. So oh, that's right. Yes, I, so I would love to speak but you to that. were you were the person who was actually enabled by that. Yes, yes, and 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 I'd like to just, if I may, go back a bit in terms of my yeah, story. Yeah, tell us, so, tell us that story. It's not that long of a story because you're so young. Yeah, no. it is. It is the dream of everybody who's in film school right now. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've again, I feel very lucky to be to be speaking these words. Um, I went to film school at the University of Gloucestershire in uh, in the UK in 2017, and as you said, I graduated in 2020. But I started making films specifically experimental documentaries inside vr chat in my second year of film school in 2018 and i was learning from practicing documentary in film school and um yeah started applying the skills that i was learning in vr chat and just had so much fun and experimenting and and playing in that medium and using vr chat as a vessel for story and learning about the people there you know the people there is what was making it so compelling and as I was making those films. I actually, I want to mention this. I pitched a documentary that was filmed in VR chat to my film tutors. And they looked at me with wide eyes and said, Joe, I don't know what you're thinking. How are you going to do this for a university project? No, we cannot do this. You know, so my film school actively kind of pushed away on what I was doing. And I, but I, you know, did, I did it anyway. I made it outside of the course and made it independently. And then as I graduated into the pandemic, um, it was obvious to me that one, I could really lean on the skills and the the form that I was experimenting with in VR chat. And it was also an amazing time to capture VR because everyone was flocking there uh, during COVID and during lockdown. And so it just felt like the kind of perfect matrimony of graduating and at the right time, having the time to make a feature film and then having the context to make it. And so, yeah, I mean, it was quite lucky and beneficial for me in some way, um, quite serendipitous, but um, obviously not great in terms of the world. So I took the opportunity and I'm very glad that I, I just really embraced that time. And VR got me through the pandemic, that's for sure. Yeah, it seems like something the universe was waiting to happen. Uh, as I said, you see the things that TMF Johnny is doing. There are many others actually experimenting with VR filmmaking over the past uh, five years. So yes, uh, great Charlie, to see, great to see that. one break out like that. Yeah, yeah, Ronnie. Um, I I got to see uh, like John Favreau was building for Lion King a fully virtual set. Yes, do all the shots, and I thought they were going to do what you did, which is film it that way, but they didn't really do it that way. Um, and then they abandoned that eventually 
um, and Lucasfilm and others came up with the volume, which was physical actors against like this gigantic array of Unreal Engines. And I was like, wait a minute, the idea of filming fully in the box mm. is awesome. What happened? It just kind of, and maybe mm. at that time they couldn't quite get the resolution. So something with the volume was the in-between. So when your film came out, I'm like that, that's what they should have done. They should have made <laughs> that happen. Um, and if they set up a big bank of computers, my guess is you could have gotten volume like rendering quality in the box, which I don't know if you could afford 30, 40 million worth of computing, like a, like a, like some of the early volumes had, but I was just like, wait a minute, why did they do all that? Not to make the film that way. Mm. But just, I was very cool that you like saw this thing and went for it. Well, yeah, I think they I, used it. They used it as a pre-visualization tool, um, Roni. That that basically they they previs the movie in VR and yes. then remade it um, with more traditional tools because of the stylistic goals of I think what they were trying to achieve. So, but I love that Joe's like, no, I'm just gonna shoot it that way. Yeah, yeah, of course. He just the film is the previs. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and in, and in Joe's world, what's interesting, and this is something you might want to comment on, Joe, is you used virtual reality as your creative tool. But the vast majority of people that saw the output watched it on a traditional screen, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly at Sundance at the film festival and then on HBO on a television. Um, so I, I, what's your thought process around that? I mean, how many, if any, mm. could actually watch it unless you were part of the cast, I guess, you know, watch it in, in, in VR chat, which you use as a recording mechanism, right? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up and it kind of goes back to making the deal with HBO. You know, once the documentary was finished, it was treated and seen by audiences and I obviously wanted it to be as a as a director to be a very accessible documentary that you can watch on a flat screen. And so, you know, when it came to making the deal and all of our festival premieres, the film wasn't treated any differently than it would be to a typical documentary. And yeah. I'm really pleased that um it you know, was I gotta make one way. I gotta oh. make one comment, which okay, I don't sure. know if, if everyone picked up on your film, but it's such a synthetic environment. People are dressed as really weird avatars. It just seems completely unnatural. But the performances you got, the the honesty you got out of the people, was way deeper than anything I've seen in any documentary in a very long time. And I thought that was a very strange mix that maybe some people don't understand about immersive computing. That maybe their true selves were actually coming out in this weird place in these bizarre looking outfits you know, to, to most people, but they were actually free to be who they really were. That was like an unexpected outcome of that film. I don't know if people have talked to you about that, but I thought it was just a striking piece of that documentary. Oh, thank you so much. That really means the world to me. And yeah, I mean, that's what the documentary is, is all about. And when it comes to the, yeah, and, and so many people have talked about that too. That's like the biggest, you know, is talking point is is how did the film kind of create this this very emotive and intimate um, sense of of conversation with these people. And um, I had a really great conversation with a director named Robert Green, who is a documentary filmmaker. I uh, released a film called Procession on Netflix a, a few years ago, and we talked all about the truth of documentary filmmaking and how it relates to filming in VR chat and virtual environments in general. And I think what's so fascinating is, is, you know, when people go into online platforms, go on the internet and go on VR chat, they're creating a, a fantastical version of themselves or embracing a certain aspect of themselves that they want to present in this virtual medium. Um, and when you're making documentaries, you're kind of sitting in between 
well, I think a really interesting way to make documentaries is to sit in between uh, of their the kind of the truth of their fantasy selves, their their virtual identities, their you know their bride and groom going down the wedding, or or the the teacher, or um or the dancer, and then you've got the authentic self, which could be someone very different or someone very similar, but it's still a slight difference and we met in virtual reality treads right in the middle but allows the subjects to express that to wrap up my thought um i think it's a really fascinating experience watching a documentary filmed inside vr chat because you're treading between fantasy and authenticity and allowing the audience to discover that for themselves you you made a very interesting choice um in making this film right because 95% of other filmmakers making this film would would hold off until the reveal of their true selves of of their physical selves right and we never have in the film that release of oh look here are two adults perhaps you know people who appear misanthropic in real life and oh they have a life in vr chat right that would be the obvious thing to do but you never did that you left it you know, in the world uh, with a lot of respect, I thought for the characters that they portrayed, you know, mm. a version of themselves. And I just thought that was a very, very bold move. And there, oh, must, I'd love have been, to... there must have been people telling you, you've got to do the reveal. The whole thing is about the reveal. Yes, definitely. I did. I definitely <laughs> did. But I knew from the very beginning that wasn't going to be the case. And I was going to film the documentary entirely inside VR and that inspiration really came from this kind of statement of, I want people to see these people the same way that I do. You know, I want them, I want the audience to connect with um, these incredible subjects in a way that feels genuine and authentic to the way that I'm interacting with them, which is incredible and fascinating. And I, you know, I want people to experience that, you know, to have that user-like experience. And I can share an anecdote of my previous short film as well, because both of those feature dramatic reveals of uh, the real selves of the subjects. And when touring my uh, my first short documentaries, uh, I went to, you know, took them to festivals, mostly around the UK. I would ask audiences, what was your favorite scene or what was the scene that captivated you the most? And they would always say, when I saw them in real life is when I was most interested. And that really frustrated me because that wasn't the part that I wanted them to be interested in. I wanted people to really connect with the virtual you were, selves. So, you were so far yeah. ahead of me in the film and you usually don't have that kind of tension in a documentary. But up until the last frame of the film, I was expecting the reveal. And of course, when we found out they were getting <laughs> married, of course I was like, oh, okay, we're gonna go from the virtual wedding to the real wedding. But the virtual wedding never happens. Yeah. was the real yeah. wedding. That yeah, I think yeah, is exactly. the point of the film. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Really lean into the experience. But if I may just show a very quick other anecdote, those two who got virtually married are now engaged. Genuinely. So, in the real I thought, I thought In the real were. world. Yeah, I thought they were. <laughs> so you had me convinced. Well, happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> that is a happy ending. And, and have you met them in real life? Yes, I had the privilege to meet everyone in the documentary in the physical world, actually, as we were touring the film across the world last year. And we all met and all the subjects came. And well, this is a, I don't know, interesting conversation, but um, all the subjects had the opportunity to speak in Q&As physically uh, about the documentary and their experience making it. And it was obviously a conversation about um, how much you wanted to step into the real world and show your authentic self. Um, but I feel really 
I feel so blessed and happy that everyone was so excited to make that step and um you know appear in all of these q a's so the film the the kind of the second the second part of the film i feel the sequel is almost the release and allowing these subjects to really step into these uh these big film q a's and premieres it was an exciting time for them we're, we're almost out of time which is of course always happens with a great guest uh we just could go on for hours we are so interested in what you're doing and uh, the the last thing I, I wanted to ask really is about the community around uh, making films in VR. And in particular, there's a festival. You mentioned it earlier, Raindance. But um, can you tell us a little bit about that? When is it going to take place next and what goes on there? Absolutely. I would love to. So I'm the curator of Raindance Immersive alongside Maria Rakusanova. And this year is Raindance Immersive 2023 and it's our first year of celebrating VR chat made short films and music videos. We've got five films and five music videos and we've just screened all of them inside our VR chat cinema uh, followed by Q&As with each of the directors and film crews. So it really felt like an actual, you know, live festival um experience and people were really able to engage in conversations and creative conversations about these films and the awards for the festival it's actually happening this weekend so we're having our closing events this weekend um celebrating the projects in the selection especially the films and the music videos um next year we're going to be celebrating films and music videos made in vr again i'm going to be curating once more um and that'll be happening in june 2024 so if anyone's listening and wants to submit um something made in vr chat please, please do please check out rain dance immersive and can we see the films in the festival? Are they still online? What's the story there? Yes, you can. Yes, uh, all of the films are released on the director's YouTube channels. And if you also go to the Rain Dance Immersive YouTube channel, you can find all of our Q&As with the filmmakers there as well, if you want to engage in those conversations. And We Made in VR, your uh, feature documentary is on still on HBO. Is there any other place we can find it? Yeah, that's right. We Met in Virtual Reality is on HBO Max. And if you're not in the US, you can find it on Now TV in the UK or other um, distributors that will be licensing HBO. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us, Joe. Uh, that's our show for today. Uh, we'll see everybody next Friday. Uh, thanks again for listening. And Joe, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a, a treat. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.